Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Hello everyone, I'm your host James Rogers and welcome back to Warfare. Now a couple of years ago I gave a lecture to the US Air Force over in Montgomery, Alabama at US Air Force Base Maxwell on the history of precision warfare and while I was there I was introduced to their amazing group of air power historians, one of which is Professor Sterling Mike Pavlak, the chair of the Department of Air Power, so I had to get him on the podcast. Mike is a historian of the Gallipoli campaign, so you might well ask what has Gallipoli got to do with air power? Well, you're about to find out. As Mike explains to us the extraordinary use of air power by the British, the French, the Germans and the Ottomans as they contested for the Dardanelles Straits and the Gallipoli Peninsula. Now, I often pause here to ask for your support by popping us a quick five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. But today, I don't have to because so many of you have done it. We're now listed in the UK as one of the top history podcasts and that's all down to you. Thank you so much. So now, here is Mike Pavlak on Air Power over Gallipoli. Enjoy. Hi Mike, welcome to Warfare. How are you doing today? Fantastic, thank you very much. Good to hear. Where are you talking to us from in the world? Well, so it's January 19th today. It's 75 degrees in Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. We don't have to worry about the winter too much here in Dixie. We have other problems, but the winter weather sort of leaves us alone. So it's a nice, sunny, balmy day in Alabama. It is literally raining ice here today. Not snow. <laughs> it's not beautiful in Europe. It is ice showering down on your face as you're walking. So I'm incredibly envious of your 75 degrees. Yeah, we'll get a couple of very, very cold nights. And by cold, I mean minus two Celsius, 25 degrees or so. But it's not enough to kill the bugs. And that's the thing that we have to worry about in the summertime. (laughs) Yes, no, I've been there in the summer. It is very, very buggy. Now, speaking of bugs, Gallipoli had a big problem with bugs, didn't it? Absolutely. That part of the Mediterranean, of course, the Mediterranean climate is which it's famous for off the coast of Turkey, just north of the Levant and what's modern day Israel. Lots of bugs, lots of dust, lots of heat, lots of problems in the Gallipoli Peninsula and on the islands that surround the Dardanelles. So we're talking about Gallipoli. We're talking about 1915-16. So perhaps we can start by telling us why the Gallipoli Peninsula was so strategically important for the Allies. 
Yeah, so First World War, and it's a project I came back to after years and years of neglect. Really like to tell that part of it. My advisor at University of Calgary, Tim Travers, was writing a book about Gallipoli, and he wrote the 1915, which is an epic tome, 450 pages on Gallipoli, which follows a number of really good Gallipoli books that came out since the campaign. I got into it because I saw a couple of documents on the airplanes, and he actually has one paragraph in this epic tome about Gallipoli on airplanes. And I was like, nah, there's a bigger story here. So after a couple of other books and Second World War Air Power, I came back to it after about a decade of neglect. Got to Turkey, got to some archives, got to France, got to back to Britain, got to Australia, and did a whole bunch of archival research. And what I finally produced, I think, was a pretty good story about the air power over Gallipoli. I didn't try to rewrite the whole campaign, but it was about these 20 or 30 airplanes that I just thought was fascinating. As an air power historian, I thought it was a story that needed to be told. And yeah, the press picked it up and it seems to be doing pretty well at this point. What did your supervisor say at the time when you said, I'm going to do air power at Gallipoli? Yeah, I wrote that into my introduction. Tim was very surprised. It was a master's level graduate class and I had a 25 page research paper due and I kept asking for extensions. He said, finally, you got to hand this in. I was like, okay. Then I handed him 65 pages and he said, oh, this, you really got into it. I said, I was super excited about this. I really had a good time with the project. And so at the end of it, in the final comments, he wrote, this is way too long. Either extend it out and make it a book or cut it down and make it an article, A minus. So I ended up getting an A minus on it, even though it was long. And like I said, about a decade later, I went back to it and I made it into a 200 page book. Oh, wow. You know, that's when you know you've got a good supervisor, Mike, because, you know, other universities, it might be the case that this doesn't meet the regulations, so I'm going to fail it. But instead, you get yourself a little A minus and you know what? You should go and turn that into a book. I mean, you had all the makings of a historian to start with, didn't you? (laughs) Well, I've always liked history and I've lived all over the world. My dad was in the army and so I've had access to history. My grandmother was a school teacher, so I've had access to books. It's just something that I was kind of born into. I had a very short professional football career, but uh, I came back to history after that because I just it's my lifeblood. I really enjoy it. Amazing. Now, you're right. So when we look at Gallipoli, we do often focus on this land-based element. It was General Sir Ian Hamilton's two landings, Cape Hellas and Anzac Cove, as it later came to be known. And we know that both landings were quickly contained by those determined Ottoman troops. You could say it was a bit of a resurgence for a declining Ottoman Empire at this point in time. And neither the British, northern New Zealand or Australian troops were able to advance much past those notoriously high cliffs. Trench warfare sets in, there are food shortages, what like we mentioned, that saturation of flies, influx of disease. So it, it is a debacle, it is brutal, it is a drama. It's understandable why we focus on that ground component. But this air power element is overlooked. So take us through the importance of air power over Gallipoli. First of all, this is pretty early in air power history. We're not talking about B-17s or Lancaster bombers. We're not talking about B-52s or F-35s. So what are we talking about in terms of the technology that's available in 1915? Yeah, so in addition to the land campaign, of course, before that, there's the naval campaign, which is also a disaster for the Allies. But what I found when I was doing my research is the British... They want to open up their Dardanelles so that there's an access to the Russian Empire, which, of course, is bookmarking or on either side of the greater German Empire. 
And so they want to get the Russian supplies through the Dardanelles up the Black Sea to Sevastopol, which, of course, Crimea is a big modern-day, a resurgent event that people are worried about because of what the Russians are doing in Ukraine and Crimea. But the Russians were on the Allied side back then, and the Ottomans joined the Central Powers. And so the Central Powers and the Ottoman Empire are on the enemy side. The British and the French want to open up the Dardanelles to bring the Russians more into the war and involved in the war. And so it becomes a naval campaign for starters. You have to remember that Churchill's the first Lord of the Admiralty in the First World War. And so he's like, okay, there's two ways that we can really get at the Central Powers. You either go at the Central Powers directly by attacking them in where you are, Denmark and the Baltic, and go straight at the heart of the matter in Berlin, or you go around and you get the soft underbelly. And so the soft underbelly, of course, is the Ottoman Empire. Nobody was taking it seriously. They had been in political tumult for years, and the young Turks were trying to take over for the Sultan, and, and there was all kinds of just disasters, and the Ottoman Empire was crumbling, it's falling apart. And the British, but Churchill especially, thought that they could really take advantage of the Ottoman Empire, knock them out of the war, get access to oil, the Middle East, things there, and then open up the Dardanelles to open up lines of communication to the Russians. So there's this big naval plan, and it starts with a big naval plan because Kitchener says you can't take anything from the from the Western Front, so you have to use only naval power. Well, part of the naval power is the Ark Royal, not the first Ark Royal, not the last Ark Royal, but one of the middle Ark Royals, which is a seaplane tender. Now, this is before aircraft carriers, and a seaplane tender carried airplanes with floats on them and cranes, and they'd crane it from the deck of the ship onto the water, and then it would go and fly around for a while, come back, land close to the ship. They'd pick it up with a crane and put it back on the ship, and then maintenance, and fix it, and refuel it, and all that kind of stuff. And it had four airplanes with floats on it. It had four in crates in the hold, but that's another story altogether. But it had four float planes. And what we're talking about are canvas and wood airplanes, biplanes, with floats with somewhere between either 50 horsepower, 80 horsepower, or 200 horsepower engines, which is just like so primitive when we're talking about today's engines and airplanes and all this kind of stuff. Two of those airplanes were so underpowered, they couldn't even get off of the water. So they only really had two airplanes that they could use to fly around. And it's really funny because hydrodynamics, and I had to look into water and float planes and all this kind of stuff. But at times, if the water is too still, they couldn't take off because they couldn't, and they called it unsticking, they couldn't unstick from the water. And then if the water's too choppy, they couldn't fly either because there were too many problems with getting off the water. So the British are relegated to two airplanes that can fly in the very, very earliest part of the Gallipoli campaign to scout for the fleet as the fleet is preparing the naval-only component of the Dardanelles campaign, which is how it starts off. And the British think, with the, along with the French allies, and they're going to try to force the Straits at the Dardanelles. And they have a naval-only plan, and they have a bunch of battleships, and they're going to force the Straits, and they're going to scare off the Ottomans, who are easily scared off, in November. And then again in February is the big campaign, and they go up the Straits, and the Ottomans are waiting. They have torpedo tubes on land that they're going to shoot torpedoes at the boats. They have sea mines in the water that they've mined the Straits. And they have all kinds of artillery, naval land artillery pointed at the straits to defeat the fleet that's coming up. And so one of the things that the early float planes are going to be used for is to spot the mines to see if as they're flying over, they can look into the water and see where the strings of mines are under the water. And they do a whole bunch of experiments and it's super cool because they know where the mines are and the British will 
put dummy mines in the water to see if the pilots can see the mines in the water. How low are they flying at this point? Okay, so between 150 and 500 feet, and they're trying different altitudes, and the mines are either five feet below the surface, 10 feet below the surface, or 15 feet below the surface. And the pilots know where they are, so they know what they're looking for, but they actually do find nearly all the mines that the Turks have laid. Then in the March attack, the March, and I wanna say it's the 18th, I'd probably have to look at my notes, but the British and the French fleet are gonna force the straits and the, they think they've mapped all of the mine field. And the night before, literally, fortuitous, the Turks didn't know it was coming, but fortuitously, the night before the naval attack, they had laid one more string of mines along Ernkoy Bay, and that's the one that the Bouvet turns into when it starts getting hit and shelled, and a couple of the other ships turn into. And the Bouvet, a big, huge French battleship, sinks in like 12 minutes after it hits a couple of mines. 600 sailors die. And it's just like, and the attack, the naval attack on the Dardanelles is defeated because of the strong defenses on the shore, but also because of the minefield that the Turks have laid. And so the naval attack fails regardless of whether or not the air power does anything about it. And you've got these airplanes looking for the mines. They find most of them, but not all of them. And the first attack on the Dardanelles fails not because of lack of air power, but because of the lack of planning and the British plan is just simply, it's not workable. It's such a brilliant feat of human engineering at this point, because when was the first flight by the Wright brothers? Are we talking 1903? 03, yeah. So we're just over a decade from that point, and we're now using seaplanes off ships to spot mines underwater. I mean, this has all the elements of an emerging world of modern warfare, doesn't it? Well, not only that, but you have to remember that the best airplanes, so we're in the fall of 1914, the spring of 1915, the best airplanes that the British have aren't even there because the Kitchener won't allow the RFC, Royal Flying Corps, his airplanes to go to the Dardanelles. It's only the RNAS, Royal Naval Air Service, which was part of the Royal Navy, to be there. And of course, the RNAS gets all the cast-offs from the RFC, that they've already said, oh, we can't fuse these against the Germans because these are already obsolete. We're only six months into the war. So the turnover of the technology in the First World War is absolutely amazing. You're correct. We're only 12 years after the Wright brothers, 1903. You think about Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin and the Zeppelins are getting pretty useful by about the turn of the century, about 1900. But it's super primitive technology as compared to what we have today. Super high tech at the time, obviously. But they're going to run into some problems in the Gallipoli campaign that are just like, that could not have anticipated. First off, adding floats to airplanes is going to add to the weight, so the performance is going to be absolutely abysmal. We're talking 40, 50 miles an hour in the air when they actually get off the water. Really slow, very, very fragile. And of course, then if they crash land, then the, the airplane's gone because it sinks into the water, obviously. But you think about how quickly the technology just simply overturns, especially two years of the war, where you go from, and I could name some airplanes off the top of my head, but the Etrich Taube, which is the German version, the Taube goes into the E1, the Fokker E1, but you start with airplanes that are flying at about 35 to 45 miles an hour in 1914 that are completely eclipsed by 1915, and you get up to 100 miles an hour. 
By the end of the war, you're almost up to 150, 160 miles an hour with inline straight sixes, air-cooled, liquid-cooled, all kinds of different engines. But the performance envelopes of the early aircraft over that four years, 1914 to 1918, is absolutely outstanding. But throughout the entire Gallipoli campaign, the RNAS contingent, both the shipborne as well as the land part, the three-wing that comes along eventually, as well as the French who are there, have the same obsolete aircraft that are cast-offs from the Western Front because that's all that they can get allocated for this far-off campaign in the, you know, basically on the edges of the empire. So how does the air power strategy start to progress in Gallipoli? Where we're using planes to spot mines, what else are the aircraft used for? Yeah, well, that's part of the problem and part of the analysis is there's absolutely no strategy. You get a bunch of airmen that go out, and so you have Hamilton, who's a general. He's going to be in charge of the, the land campaign. You get Cardin, who's the Navy admiral. And then you get commanders. So 35 to 40-year-old men who are pilots that are like, oh, let's figure this out as we go. I got a couple airplanes. What can we do? I've got some really fragile airplanes. I can fly about 50 miles an hour. I can fly for maybe two hours total. I've got no machine guns. I don't have any bombs yet. I maybe have a camera. They had one camera. I don't have any radios that work to radio back to the fleet, so I can't really help the fleet out with this aerial observation. What am I going to use this for? And during the course of the campaign, what we see is some very young, innovative technologically oriented commanders, like 04s and 05s. If we're talking to Air Force, which I teach for majors and lieutenant colonels, it's Navy ranks, of course, so it's lieutenant commanders and commanders who are making it up as they go. They've got some equipment, they've got a war that's going on, and they want to have an effect, but they really don't understand or know how to apply air power for best effect, either tactical, operational, or strategic. And so you get this evolution of the technology as well as the tactics and the doctrine at the same time that informs the use of air power in this very specific area of the world with a very few number of airplanes. That's part of the reason it was I was drawn to this is because I get 20 or 30 airplanes that I can literally track every single one of them every day. And you see a fantastic evolution of the concept of air power as applied in this campaign. And so Charles Romney Sampson, which is one of my main characters in the book, is in charge of three wing, and he's going to be at Tenedos, and then he's later at Imbros and Mudros, and he goes to all the different islands, because of course, well, there is a very, very funny story about when they try to put airplanes on Hellas, but we'll get there, I'm sure. But he has a dozen airplanes, 20 airplanes at one point, 12 pilots. He's a commander, he's a Navy commander, so he's 05. And he's trying to figure out how he can apply air power for best operational strategic effect for the guys on the ground that we were already talking about who are in trench warfare fighting against the Turks trying to make a difference at the Gallipoli Peninsula. And there's no strategic guidance whatsoever. Nobody understands what the strategy is. And if they look back at it, it's like, okay, get to the high ground. The idea is always force the Dardanelles. They never figure out how to unlock the problem of forcing the Dardanelles to get the Russians out of the Black Sea to get them into the war, more effectively into the war. So it's this gruesome battle of carnage and attrition over the Gallipoli Peninsula for no real strategic reason. So the best that they can do is try to figure out how to mount operations that'll be successful. And they still can't really figure out how to incorporate air power into this story, into this narrative. 
And besides that, the generals, the army, the ground people are like, yeah, I don't get this air power thing and I don't trust you, so you know, go do what you want to do. The Navy is kind of the same way. We don't trust this air power thing. You guys go do what you need to do. And so the air power commanders and lieutenant commanders are left on their own to design air power tactics and doctrine to be able to apply air power effectively in this campaign. As you listen to this, me and Team History Hit are on our way down to the Weddell Sea, joining the expedition mounted by the Falklands Maritime Heritage Trust to the place where we believe the endurance lies on the seafloor. If we find it, it'll be the greatest underwater discovery since the Titanic. So get ready. Dan Snow's History Hit podcast is the exclusive place to follow in real time the search for the lost endurance shipwreck in Antarctica, with regular episodes and updates dropping in the feed throughout the month. Okay, so what sort of characters are we talking about here? Because we need to understand the people to know what sort of harebrained schemes they come up with. Yeah, so Richard Clark Hall is the commander of the Ark Royal because he's an aviator who's a commander of the ship, but he's also a pilot. And so the long tradition of not only the British service, but the American service of an aviator being in charge of a seaplane tender, now aircraft carrier, so they understand aircraft operations. And he's going to fly over the peninsula a whole lot, and he's going to throw grenades off the side of the airplane to you know try to disrupt the enemy and all this kind of thing. They spot for mines, they finally get a camera, they take some aerial photographs of the ground where the Turks are, where their camps are, where their machine gun nests and their artillery are. So aerial photography really blossoms during this entire story. Strategic, I use that word in quotes. Strategic bombing is the concept of how do you throw stuff off of an airplane to have an effect on the ground. Finally, by the end of the campaign, they're going to get a couple of machine guns. So Richard Clark Hall is the Ark Royal Commander. You get Commander Charles Rumney Sampson, who's three-wing commander. He's, a, again, a naval commander. He's just an absolutely flamboyant kind of character. Brad Pitt's going to play him if I ever get this to be a movie. I look forward to it. Fantastic. I've got this wonderful picture from the archives. He's standing in front of his airplane, and he's got a pistol in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand. And he's one of these kind of guys. He's a test pilot from before the war. He's RNAS. He's one of the first pilots in Britain. But he's just insanely adventurous. He's absolutely fantastic. If you look into him, he's the first one to take off from a floating platform. The British lay out a little tiny, a bunch of boards on top of a battleship, and he takes off from it. And so he's the first one to take off from a floating platform. He's the first one to land on a floating platform. It's anchored, but to land on a floating platform. An American, Eugene Eli, will be going back and forth with him for these records of naval aviation things that are going on. Eugene Eli dies in one of his experiments. And so Charles Rumney Sampson continues on his crazy stuff. And he has a highest flight record at one point. He has a fastest flight record at one point. He's just this crazy guy, but he really gets airplanes and he really wants to have aircraft, especially in wartime, make a difference. And so he's just a fascinating character. And he does an autobiography after the war and all of his records were at the National Archives in London. So I got, I really got into that character because there was so much that was preserved about his career. And we'll come back to him at the very end and the lessons learned concept that probably want to touch. So you get a French capitaine, Captain 
Army of the Air, so it's Army ranks, but 04, as far as I can tell, maybe in 05, who's in charge of the French contingent, MF.98T for Tenedos, and he has 12 airplanes and he has 14 pilots. So there's a small French contingent that I write a little bit about, and their records are really tough to find. And I really have to sort of fill in a lot of the blanks with, you know, educated guesses kind of thing. But the French are there. They do most of the stuff on the Asian side of the Dardanelles Straits. And they're focused on Chinacalais and the French contingent that's on the Asian side for a very, very short period of time. But the French are there as well. They also have their own seaplane tender, the Foudre. And it's uh, one of the first airplane tenders. The French say it's the first that was ever built. And so, you know, the French and the British are going to go back and forth on who, who invented the concept. And then, of course, the Germans. The Germans are going to show up and they're going to support and fortify the Turkish contingent with German equipment. And so you get Eric Serno, who's also a major. So we're talking mid-career officers, and it's absolutely fascinating because for the most part, it's the younger people that have a better concept of the technology and how to work the technology. Major Eric Serno is one of the first German pilots to get his wings heavier than air wings, airplane wings, and he'll go down as part of the German contingent under Lehman von Sanders, who's the famous, infamous German who goes down to advise the Turks. And Lehman von Sanders has a big part of this story, and it's fascinating what he does not only during the war, but after the war. But Eric Serno is this fascinating character, and what I was fortunate enough to find is that he kept a diary, and he wrote a report, that, like, basically the week he got there, and then he wrote a report after the war. And they're both, like, 100-page reports, and it was super interesting the German archives were like, you can't photocopy that. You have to take handwritten notes. And so I did. It took a while, but whatever. Eric Serno as a major goes down and he's given like basically all the money that he wants to build a Turkish Ottoman Air Force. And the Turks will send half a dozen officers up to Germany for flight training. But initially it's Germans who come down to Turkey on visitors' visas we're just civilians in nice suits. We're businessmen. We're going to just go live in Istanbul for a while. Then they get there and they're the German pilots. The Ottomans will give them Turkish uniforms and cross-commission them in the Ottoman army. And then the airplanes show up in crates marked circus equipment. And they put them together and they start flying as well. And so it's a fascinating story where you get the Germans on one side who are advising the Turks, who will later get observers and pilots from trained from Germany. But initially, it's German pilots flying German airplanes on behalf of the Ottoman Empire against the British and the French. So Gallipoli leads to the birth of the Ottoman Air Force, and I'm sure later that becomes the Turkish Air Force. This is the point at which air power is born in Turkey. Absolutely. And so they start with German equipment at that point, Eric Serno stays on in Turkey after the Dardanelles campaign and the, the Gallipoli campaign is completed in the evacuation, and he literally builds the Ottoman Air Force. Wow. What I find interesting there, of course, is that the Turkish are still finding it difficult to find planes to fly off their new aircraft carriers, and they're now moving towards their own indigenously produced drone systems to fly off their aircraft carriers to provide some sort of air power capability because no one else will supply them aircraft systems although back then it sounds like the germans were filling the gap quite nicely <laughs> so did this lead to a point then mike where over gallipoli you had dogfights above the troops not dogfights until very very late in the campaign partly because none of the airplanes were armed at that point Go back to the earlier comments about the performance envelopes. None of them had the performance to have guns on them. 
So Samson, for example, he's got some airplanes and he's going to put machine guns over the top wing so that it doesn't blow off the propeller when he's flying. And they had shotguns and they had rifles in the cabin to shoot at other airplanes. But the German Turk side of the story, they have a whole lot more problems, partly because Turkey is not industrialized to that point to be able to put supplies, spare parts and fuel and oil and the things that the airplanes need to keep flying. And so the German Turk contingent will always suffer from a lack of air power simply because they can't keep the machines in the air. Then there's a couple of instances where there's a bad storm and a hangar collapses and they lose all their airplanes for three weeks kind of thing. The German Turk side of the story is going to have a whole lot more problems simply with supply and keeping their airplanes in the air than the Allied side. That said, there are a couple of instances at the very, very end of the campaign where you do have the introduction of a true fighter airplane, but by the Germans. Throughout the entire campaign, the British in the logbooks will say, okay, I'm going out on a contact patrol and they don't see anything, so they'll throw a couple of grenades off the side of the airplane and come back kind of thing, or take a couple of pictures or draw a couple of maps or whatever. They do see some airplanes every once in a while. They kind of come in contact every once in a while. But for the most part, they don't see each other and they don't shoot each other or shoot at each other throughout the entire campaign. There are a couple of instances where the running gun battle of the British observer in the backseat is shooting a rifle at the German airplane and this kind of thing and forces him down. And I think I've got an aerial kill. And it's like, no, you just hit his gas tank and he ran out of gas. Does that count? Anyway, so no real air-to-air combat as we conceive of it today in the Gallipoli Peninsula, simply because there weren't a lot of airplanes to begin with. And then the Germans, of course, are going to face very, very dire circumstances with their technology throughout the entire campaign. I think that counts. If you can hit a moving plane with a rifle... And knock it out by hitting it in the gas tank. Uh, let's not take it away from this guy. That counts. Okay. All right, I'll good. That, that's there for the history books. That's there for the records. Now, you've intrigued me. Tell me about this attempted landing on Hellas. Okay, so uh, the, the, the three squadrons off on one of the islands off the coast of Gallipoli. Uh, let me grab my book real quick. And in the after-action reports in the official British record by Aspinall Oglander. I mean, it's a long hyphenated British word. You know how that goes. Last name. He says, never in the history of air power have land machines flown so much across water and water machines flown so much across land. So they're dealing with the ocean as well. So they're off on an island and it's about 20 miles as the crow flies to the Gallipoli Peninsula. And if you think about how limited the flight range was of these early airplanes, getting that 20 miles and then 20 miles back, you only have a certain number of miles over the battlefield. So range is a huge problem. And so they're looking for places that they can get closer to the Gallipoli Peninsula. And so the other island that they choose eventually is the one that's a little bit closer, and that's Imbros. And it's only about 13 miles on a clear day. You can actually see it from the Gallipoli Peninsula because there's high cliffs on one side, like the White Cliffs of Dover kind of thing. But Samson, he's like, yeah, we want to get airplanes really close. And so after the troops wade ashore and they capture the very, very toe at Hellas, He says, we're going to bring airplanes. So 10 years ago, when I was at Gallipoli, I was able to walk around the battlefield for a couple of days. It was just absolutely brilliant. It was fantastic. 
And the maps, of course, at the time didn't exist. The maps arguably today don't exist. It was most bizarre. When I was in Turkey, I was like, I need a map of Gallipoli Peninsula. And usually I walk into a gas station or a grocery store or whatever, I can find a map. Well, for some reason, Turkey just still doesn't have maps. Maybe it's a security issue or whatever. So I used my really bad, I, don't, I have absolutely no Turkish, so I couldn't speak Turkish. But I spoke in English very slowly and very loudly, as Americans do, and they still didn't understand me. So I used some German and some French. They didn't understand a word I was saying. No maps. It was super weird. And in the record, in the official record, there are no good maps except for, like, really big campaign maps. And so I'm walking around, and I'm in Gallipoli, and I'm trying to figure out. Samson at one point says they're going to land. They're going to have a temporary emergency airfield at Hellas right behind the beaches, sort up the plane. And it's sort of a flat plane that goes up to Carithia, the little tiny town that's there. And he says there's a hillock, a small hill that they could hide behind. So the Turkish artillery that was at the specific point that overlooked one of the beaches, the Turkish artillery couldn't see where they were going to have a temporary airfield. The temporary airfield could also not see. And today, the modern cemetery and, like, high spot is still at that place on the high ground where the Turkish artillery could have seen the expanse of Cape Hellas. It's super impressive and very cool. Lots of Turkish flags. So I'm walking around, and I'm like, okay, this could be it. Took a bunch of pictures, and I was like, yeah, this is probably best guess. Historian best guess, this is probably where it was. Because if you look down from where the Turkish cemetery is and there's like this little hill place that it's like okay yeah that, that conceivable but he's like okay so we're going to land some airplanes here and see if we can make it work and as soon as he starts landing airplanes there of course the Turkish artillery is just going to pummel the place because they're like oh we're going to destroy the allied airplanes they only have 20 to start with and so they hide it behind this little hill and they're fairly safe and over time about a couple of weeks Samson's like yeah this is too risky let's not do this so they move all the airplanes off, and they don't try that anymore. But at one night, they put a fake airplane, they build this, something that might look like an airplane to Turkish observer looking through binoculars. And uh, they put it out in the open. And the <laughs> Samson in his record says, they fired at it for three days before they finally hit it, not even knowing that it was just a dummy airplane. There's this back and forth that's just hilarious between the primitive nature of war at the time even though it's incredibly like devastating and it just, there's these funny anecdotes that always emerge from my historical research that's just like, I can't believe this ever happened. But yeah, so at one point they do have a try to have an emergency field on Cape Hellas, but it, it doesn't last for very long. I'd like to have seen what that fake plane was made out of and how much it actually looked like an aircraft. Yeah. So tell us, how does this come to an end and what lessons are learned from air power over Gallipoli? Yeah, so at one point, and I like to argue in the analysis that Samson is incredibly innovative, and he will try pretty much everything. He has grenades that he uses as bombs and later gets about 100-pound bombs. Then at one point, he tries a 200-pound bomb, which is a naval artillery shell, and he's going to rig it up to drop on the enemy. There's a hilarious anecdote where he's dropping bombs and he's flying back to the air base, and he's like, oh, I... I didn't feel that one come off the airplane. I still think I have a bomb that's hung. And so he lands really, really carefully and softly, and then he jumps out of his airplane as it's slowing down, and he runs away from it. And he says, everybody was laughing at me and wondering what I was doing because the bomb actually did come off. He just didn't realize it. And so he, 
But then a buddy of his crashes and the bomb goes off and then it kills him and one of his best friends. And yeah, so there's all this tragedy as well in, in the brand new innovations that they're trying. So they do observation and they finally get a working radio where they can radio the ships and they do naval artillery spotting where they'll radio the ships and say, hey, adjust your fire to hit these sorts of targets. And there's great stories about how they're going to observe for the naval artillery. They do aerial photography and aerial mapping to find out where the enemy is and, and land features and et cetera. And if you've ever been to Gallipoli, there are deep ravines and lots of places to hide. And so the airplanes really help out with that. At one point during the Suvla offensive in August, the airplanes are flying around and they're telling the people on the ground, hey, keep advancing. There's no Turks here yet. Keep advancing. Keep advancing. But the land commanders don't trust the aerial observers. And so they don't and they stop and they cede the initiative. And it turns out it's a stalemate there, too. They will try bombing. Like I said, at one point, they try the first torpedo bombing. When the airplanes from the Ark Royal gets a 1,400-pound torpedo and is able to get off the water and goes and torpedoes a Turkish ship. So the first torpedo attack from an airplane on a ship is during the Gallipoli campaign. I mean, that must have been hell to handle that plane. Yeah. No kidding. At one point, the engine is knocking, apparently, in the anecdote, the engine is knocking and he has to land on the water and sort of taxi across the water with this torpedo on the airplane. And the Turks spot the airplane and they're like, oh, it's one of ours because he's on the water. Why else would he be on the water? And then he takes off briefly, fires his torpedo, sinks the ship and then goes back to the Ark Royal. He actually sinks the ship. Yeah, yeah. So the first use of a torpedo on a plane is successful. Yeah. So just crazy, crazy stuff. And then they spot the mines, of course. And then at one point in the campaign, Charles Romney Sampson looks at the map and he goes, you know what? The entire Turkish army is being supplied through one rail line from north. As you look at the peninsula, that's why he call it a peninsula. And he says, there's one rail line. He says to his airplane all of his squadron, he says, if we can cut that rail line, we can have a quote-unquote strategic effect on the enemy. We can cut their supplies. And fortunately, there's a railway and there's a railway bridge at Maritza. And he says, we're going to take our airplanes, we're going to go destroy this railway bridge. And if we can do that, you know, maybe we can have a bigger effect than what we're doing right now, which is just kind of taking pictures and then telling everybody where everything is. And so he'll load up the squadron and they'll run a couple of bombing campaigns, strategic bombing campaigns, but bombing campaigns against this railway bridge. And even though the absolute inaccuracy makes the Turks reinforce the railway bridge, they don't ever take it down. They take it down for two days at one point. They don't ever completely destroy the railway bridge. But it's Samson thinking ahead about how to have a strategic effect with air power. In like the third or fourth attack on that railway bridge, you get Davies. I don't remember his first name, Commander Davies, when he's going to win the VC. And so I got to talk about that because it's a fantastic story. He and his couple of the other pilots are bombing the bridge and one of the other pilots gets hit in the engine and is forced down from ground fire. And lands his airplane and he's setting it on fire and Davies flies down real quick and the guy jumps in his single-seater airplane and they take off and they come back to the airfield. And Samson's already back. And Samson, throughout the entire campaign, flies every single sortie with the rest of his squadron. Like, he's going to lead from the front. But Samson's, like, got his binoculars out. He's counting how many airplanes are coming back, like every movie that is about air power and bombing raids. And he sees his Davies airplane coming back and it's super slow. And he's like, what's going on? Why is this? Oh, no, we're missing people. We're missing. And they hadn't lost anybody to enemy action to that point. 
And he's like, oh, no, we've lost, we've lost our pilot. And the anecdote goes, Davies climbs out of his airplane after he lands, and then the other guy unfolds himself from the wheel well where he was sitting underneath the working the pedals as they were flying back. And the funny thing is, so Davies gets this VC for the Victoria Cross for rescuing his, his fellow pilot, and there's this great, huge thing, a commendation from the king in his record that's like all this flowery speech for acts of gallantry in the face of the enemy, blah, 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 signed the king. And in Davy's logbook, it says, went down, picked up pilot, returned to base. <laughs> so you get this juxtaposition of what's going on in war and some people who take massive amounts of credit and some people who's like, oh, it's just doing my job kind of thing. But... So Samson, it's just an anecdote about the VC awarded to pilot at, at Gallipoli, which, of course, gets into the book as well. But to me, Samson is having this, he's struggling with how air power can be used to the best effect in the primitive age, the very, very beginning of air power, but how it can be used strategically in war to have an effect on the enemy that's outsized more than just this very primitive technology he thinks would allow in the first place, which is part of the fascinating part of writing the book. And these are the debates that end up obsessing the British, the French, the Germans, the Italians, and the Americans all through the interwar period. How best to strategically bomb, to tactically bomb, to make sure that you can really affect the war-making capacity of the enemy. Mike, thank you so much for taking us through this history. You've got to tell us the name of the book and where people can buy it. Yeah, Air Power Over Gallipoli. 1915 to 1916. It came out from Naval Institute Press in 2020 during the height of pandemic, so I haven't really been able to, to celebrate it yet. I did have a couple of pints, but it's on Amazon. It's still in hardcover, so it's a little bit pricey still, but some really good pictures. And, uh, you know, if you ever catch me in person, I'll sign it for you if you want. And the book, it does. It looks great. The cover's amazing. Thank you. I didn't pick that picture. They picked it for me. I had a different one in mind, but hey, it turned out pretty good. It looks good. We'll go out there, buy the book. Mike, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.